Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thanks, Tim. So today we are having an interlude from our sermon series on Ephesians. So I've pulled out a past sermon that I gave in combination with Dave Godfrey and Malcolm from 2017, where we spoke about different religious worldviews. And I've decided to reuse this sermon just because it fits so nicely with our current Bible study series on worldviews and religions. So today's sermon is about a big part of the Christian worldview, which is known as religious exclusivism. So, two complicated words up there, worldview and exclusivism. Who wants to suggest a definition for worldview? I know many of you can do this. Yes, Tim? A perspective on what they believe the meaning of life is. Sounds good. Any other thoughts? Matthew? A view of the world. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha? A secular view of the world. Okay, good. Secular ideology. An ideology, yep. Okay, so a worldview is, is those things, is, is all correct, but it's bigger than that. It's everything that shapes how you think as a person. Uh, it's your experiences, your beliefs that shape the way you view the world, the way you interpret reality, the way you interpret meaning. That's kind of what a worldview is. Malcolm, this is your expertise. Would you define it with anything additional? Um, yeah, I'd just say it's... it's yeah, it's, it's your whole, it's the perspective that you have on the world and the way that you approach it and live uh, in the world. Yep. And we all have our own worldviews. Each one of us has a worldview, how we understand reality. Okay, what about exclusivism, religious exclusivism in terms of Christianity? Yes. Could it mean where one particular little group thinks they've got it 100% right and everyone else is wrong? It can mean that, absolutely, although that's not the way I'm using it today. But that's very good. Um, there's only one way that is true. There's only one truth about God, and there's only one way to find God. So that's the definition of religious exclusivism. So Jesus said some pretty controversial things, didn't he? But perhaps the most controversial and the most difficult thing for people, at least, today to accept is his statement that he was the truth, the ultimate truth, and the only way to find God. That's quite a claim. To really understand why Jesus claimed to be the only answer, the solution to our eternal calling, it's helpful to go back to the Bible and look at what the Bible says about what the problem is. So if Jesus is the answer, what's the problem? First, though, I want to share 
a story about something that happened to me when I was a young child. I was two at the time. And my family had gone on a holiday to Calbarry in Western Australia. My mum and dad, my four-year-old brother Duncan and I were walking where the Murchison River meets the Indian Ocean. I asked my mum and dad to retell the story a few years ago and I think I can actually pinpoint pretty much the exact area where my brother and I came a whiskers inch away from dying. It was right here in this blue circle area that you can see the satellite picture. Mum and dad were walking maybe 20 or 30 metres in front of my brother Duncan and I and we were following along wading in ankle deep water. My dad and mum tell me that they can remember every detail of what happened next perfectly. They turned and they were watching Duncan and me walk when suddenly, in an instant, we just sunk and disappeared. Right there, out of sight, within a second, gone. My mum says she was absolutely stunned and was glued to the spot and could not move at all. And she said, my dad moved faster than she'd ever seen him move in his life. He sprinted across to the place where we disappeared It was a brown, muddy mess of quicksand, and he thrust in one single movement both arms into the quicksand and pulled us both out. So that was the day I almost died. (laughs) That was the day I needed to be rescued. I was covered head to toe in muddy quicksand, and I was going to die. There was nothing I could have done to pull myself out of that quicksand, nothing at all. Now, I tell this story because it kind of represents to me what the Bible says about humanity. And this is the crucial starting point to understand why Jesus said he's the eternal way to life. If you've got your Bible out, pull it open, flip open to the letter of Romans in the New Testament. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen. So chapter one of Romans is an incredible summary of human spiritual history. It's a very condemning summary. It doesn't make for easy reading at all. It tells us what things should be like for us, and then it tells us how things actually have turned out. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, these words are written. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he's made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. That's not a message that fits a modern secular worldview, is it? But this is the, the biblical message. There's an underlying problem to humanity. According to Romans, there's enough evidence out there in the world for us to recognise the reality of a creator and to worship him. And yet, there's a universal human problem. We don't do it. We don't recognise God. We don't worship him. Whether it's a person who's grown up in 21st century Australia 
whether it's someone who lived 2,000 years ago in Europe. We all seem to fall into the same hole of not recognising our Creator and worshipping Him. This is a universal problem. It spans culture, it spans location, it spans time. That's the message Roman 1 tells us. And it's not the way things are meant to be. We were designed to know God and worship Him. But people everywhere have discarded God's design for us. According to Romans 1, we're without excuse because there's enough natural evidence out there for us not to discard God's design. And yet, we discard it. And when we discard God's design, things go from bad to worse. That's how Romans 1 continues. Furthermore, just as they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, people, that is, so God gave people over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. People disobey their parents. People have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, me, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever part, point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do these same things. That's a pretty hard read, isn't it, Romans 1? Romans 1 is talking about humans everywhere through all time, all place in history. It means it's talking about me and you right here, right now. It's probably not the way we like to think about ourselves, but it's actually pretty hard to deny if we're honest. On a global scale, the destruction that humans have caused is obvious. How many wars have there been because of human evil? How many cruel injustices carried out by tyrants? But it's not easy just to see on a global scale, it's also hard to deny on the personal scale, on the personal level. How many times have I shown lack of mercy? How many times have I been boastful or arrogant? Sure, this isn't the only narrative for human history or for my life, for that matter. But it's dishonest if we say that evil and sinfulness aren't dominant themes in human life. Evil and sin are real, and they separate us from God. That's what the Bible says. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. The wage of sin's death. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who's a, who sins is a slave to sin, and a slave has no permanent place in a family. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins... Hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they'll die, led astray by their own great folly. And we all, like sheep, each of us, have gone astray, turning to our own ways. This is the diagnosis of the problem, according to the Bible. We're meant to be worshippers of God. We're meant to be followers of him. We're meant to be his children, present with him now and into eternity. 
but we're not there. We're not here now. We're not going to get there in eternity because of evil and sin. We're stuck in that muddy pit and we need to get, need to get out so we can be with God both now and into the future eternal life. That's the position every person finds him or herself in, according to the Bible. And this is why it's good to see this as a starting point if we want to understand why Jesus said he was the only way. A really common answer to the question of how to find God and how to find the way to heaven is to say there are lots and lots of roads to heaven, lots of roads to God. So religious pluralism is the term that's used for that belief. To avoid confusion, I want to distinguish religious pluralism from the idea of religious liberty. So religious liberty is the idea that in a plural society like ours, that's the idea that every person should be given dignity and the right to choose his or her beliefs. That's a critical aspect of a free society, isn't it? To give each person that dignity to choose his or her beliefs. But that's different from the idea of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is the belief that all religions pretty much lead to God. That it doesn't matter what faith we practice. Ultimately, the end result is the same. All religions lead to heaven. That's religious pluralism. And it's certainly comforting to believe that. I remember speaking to a friend of mine in uni who converted to Buddhism. One day he was telling me about how on the surface different religions were different. I know we've all heard this before and thought this maybe. But that deep down, they all taught universal principles. They all led to the same eternal destination of heaven or nirvana. Like different paths leading up a mountain. It didn't matter which path you take. Each path is going to lead to the same final place on top of the mountain. That's how my friend saw faith. And this is definitely pretty comforting, isn't it? It's a comforting thought to believe. It means that pretty much everyone is going to find God and reach heaven. Problem is, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. One faith says there's only one God. Another says there are many gods. And yet another says there are no gods. One faith says that Jesus died and rose again. And that this is a historical event. And that's what brings us forgiveness and peace with God. Another faith says Jesus never even died. That what actually brings us peace and eternal life is submitting to the will and the rules of God through professing faith in another prophet and through praying a certain number of times a day, fasting a certain number of times a year and giving alms. And then another faith doesn't speak about Jesus at all. It says enlightenment is reached through understanding the truth about suffering and ensuring right thinking, right actions and right speaking. All of these faiths, they all lead us to want to do good things, to do good works, don't they? But they're actually different in their fundamental teachings. So it's impossible to honestly say that they're all essentially the same, that they all lead to the same God or gods. It sounds like a wonderful and comforting idea, the idea of religious pluralism, but it doesn't make sense. It's not consistent with the evidence of what different faiths teach themselves. All faiths aren't the same, And it's just not intellectually honest to say that they are. Thinking about pluralism in the light of the gospel is fascinating. But it does open up a real difficulty, doesn't it? 
opens up this emotional question. What about people who haven't put their faith in Jesus? What about those who have never heard about Jesus? How could a loving and just God condemn these people? These are questions that that tug on our hearts. If we don't feel distressed when we think about these questions, then we've got pretty hard hearts. I don't know of any easy answer to those questions. Perhaps there aren't easy answers to them. But I do know that it's not our responsibility to judge others, to be the jury of others. Jesus made that abundantly clear when he said, very simply in Matthew 7, do not judge others or you'll be judged. Only God can judge the heart of another person. Only God can make a judgment of what happens to that person after death. It's not our responsibility to make that judgment. But it's also true that God's spoken very clearly. He's spoken to us about our need for rescue. When I was buried in quicksand as a little toddler and needed to get out of that quicksand, I needed to do it very quickly if I was going to live. I couldn't do it myself. This is an image of what things are like spiritually. Every person needs to get out of that quicksand that's being fallen into through sin and rejection of God. Every person needs to escape so that he or she can breathe and live eternally. The amazing thing is this. God loves us enough that he wants to rescue us. Even though we got ourselves into the quicksand through our own sin, through turning our backs on him, God wants to rescue us. And he has provided the way. Jesus the only way we can be saved. Jesus himself was explicit when he said that trusting him was the only way a person could be restored from his brokenness and come to God the Father. Jesus said it very explicitly. And after all, if, it, if he wasn't the only way, why on earth did he go through all that suffering? Why did he die for us if it wasn't necessary? So bringing these two great truths together. One, it's not our responsibility to make judgments on the hearts of others. And two, everyone's stuck in the mud and needs Jesus, the way to true life. Bringing these two truths together leads to action. It's easy to proudly and confidently reach the conclusion that we've been saved by Jesus and that's what matters. And that those who haven't placed their faith in him, they won't receive eternal life because they haven't recognised the one true God but there's nothing we need to do about it. That's easy to say, but it's cold, isn't it? Really, really cold. It's also easy to compassionately reach the conclusion that we've been blessed because we've had the opportunity to hear and know about Jesus, but that God's just. And so others who haven't called on the name of Jesus will be okay. They'll be all right because they're trying in their own way to live a good life. That's easy to say too, isn't it? But it's not what the Bible says. It's wrong. Jesus said we do need him. The Bible teaches us that we're stuck in that muddy hole of sin. So we who are fortunate enough to have heard the good of Jesus, we should care enough about that so that we act so that others aren't left in their muddy place. The message of Jesus that he's the only way to know God and eternal life, that's a call to evangelism. I think that's what it is. And this is what Romans 10 has to say about this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But how many, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? If we truly believe the words of Jesus when he said he's the exclusive way to the Father, if we truly love other people, then we're compelled to share the news of Jesus to others. And what a difference sharing the words and claims of Jesus to others makes. If you ever think that you can't make much of a difference as just one person, think again. I'm going to show you a video in a moment that shows the spread of Christian faith over the last 2,000 years. And this spread happened because people like us, just one person at a time, chose to spread the words and story of Jesus with friends, family, neighbours, acquaintances. When you share your faith, the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts and hearts change. People change and people are saved. And then the world changes. So never think that as one person you can't make a difference. 